0: Welcome to Extreme Genes, brought to you by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. This week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio... What would it be like to identify your own birth father? Hi, it's Fisher, and I'll be talking to an Idaho woman who did just that using genetic genealogy. Plus, CeCe Moore joins us on the show talking about the latest episode of her ABC hit series, The Genetic Detective. Plus, Melissa Barker, the archive lady, and Diane Southard, your DNA guide. It's a loaded show this week on Extreme Genes Family History Radio, brought to you by FamilySearch.org. Discover. Gather, connect, a presentation of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter day Saints. And welcome to America's Family History Show, Extreme Jeans and ExtremeGenes.com. It is Fisher here, your radio root sleuth, on the program where we shake your family tree and watch the nuts fall out. Great to have you along, Genies, and uh, we have some great guests today. Very excited to talk to what we call an ordinary person with an extraordinary find. She is a Pocatello, Idaho resident up in that neighborhood, Beverly Hewitt. She just broke through, found her birth father using DNA. We're going to talk about the process that she used and how she did it, how she's feeling about that. The Archive Lady joins us later on in the show, Melissa Barker, and this is an interesting. Interesting time for archives, obviously, with the lockdown going on. So she's going to fill us in on what is going on in her world and things we might expect when the lockdown eases. We're going to find, I think, a lot more stuff available or at least indexed there. Cece Moore is on later in the show as well, talking about her latest episode of her new ABC TV series, The Genetic Detective. And speaking of genetics, I've got my good friend Diane Southern in this week. She is the author of Your DNA Guide, the book, filling in for David Allen Lambert this week. Hi, Diane. How are you?
1: Hi, Scott. I'm so excited to be on the first half of this show and talking about all kinds of things with you.
0: Oh, we're going to hold you over for the last part, too, for Ask Us Anything, so we can answer a listener question there as well. So you don't escape that easily, just the front end. (laughs) (laughs) Perfect. Well, let's, uh, let's talk about a couple of things here. First of all, as your DNA guide, what's on your mind these days? What are you seeing?
1: Well, I, I wanted to mention and give a good shout-out to the Shared Centimorgan Project. They have that update. So that's a project hosted on the DNA Painter website, and there's a lot of hands in the kitchen there making that happen, but especially to Blaine Bettinger and... And he's turning that over to Johnny Pearl, who's programming it and making it look good on the website so we can access it. And the combination of those two guys this time has just hit a really big home run for me. There's so much data involved in analysis that tells stories that I feel like the more access we get to the data, the better we can tell a story. And with the new update to the Shared Son of Morgan project, you have access to a lot more data. And it's just been really exciting to look at.
0: Well, and I've had a lot of people asking me about that, the histograms that are up there, those bell curves, they can really help you figure out uh, potentially what the likelihood somebody is of a certain relationship to you among your matches.
1: Exactly. And I found even that the more you have a skill, the more you practice a skill, the more you operate less by, you know, set rules and more according to your gut instincts and in general that's i think kind of the definition of an expert right you can act on instinct instead of having to research everything all the time but it's really helped me to hone my instincts so when i see a certain number of shared centimorgans i have a feel for what kind of relationship that it is just from sheer experience doing it so often but when I take that number into the Shared Son of Morgan project and I place it on that bell curve and I can see it, oh yeah, it's in that sweet spot right there in the middle or it's on the edge one way or the other, it really gives me that extra bit of information to feel either very confident moving forward in a given relationship or if I'm on the edges and I can see where it's at the edge, I can tell myself, wait a second, let's just take one step back and let's ask a bigger question. Let's not ask, is this the right relationship? But instead, let's ask what other relationships could also fit this number. Right. And it, it's just that change, right? in the way that you're thinking about things that helps you just cast a broader net sometimes so that you don't get so pigeonholed in, oh, it has to be this.
0: I love the way you're thinking. You're absolutely right. And look at how the tools just keep getting better and better. And if people haven't looked at this yet, you can do that on the DNA Painters site. And thanks to Johnny and to Blaine for bringing it to us. It's just better and better all the time. Well, let's talk about some family histoire news here today, Diane. And uh, this is right up your wheelhouse here. Civil War Female Spies. And this is a great article that's being talked about right now, and it's linked to ExtremeGenes.com. Tell us about some of the people on that list.
1: Oh, my gosh. I loved this collection. Of course, I love history. I love women in history especially. And I feel like a lot of times we think that this revolution of women standing up for ourselves, making a name for ourselves, having careers, has been a somewhat modern invention. When it just hasn't. Women have been doing amazing and powerful things forever, and I love these stories of, of these individual women who stepped up and said, I can do something here. I have a skill set. I have an experience. I have a responsibility, and I'm going to move forward with it. The images are very powerful. I loved this picture uh, on, on, in the article of Rose Greenhow, and she's pictured with her daughter in a prison. And I look at her, and she's mothering from prison.
0: <laughs> I love it. You got to see this story. It's linked at com. Another story that I got a kick out of, too, uh, goes back to the pandemic of a century ago, and it's a story about the mayor of Oakland. And back in those days, I had no idea that masks were required during the pandemic of 1918 to 1920. But in California, it was true. And uh, the mayor of Oakland, after things had settled down a little bit, went to Sacramento to try to get something passed on behalf of the city of Oakland. And he's sitting in the hotel lobby where he was staying. And he had his mask hanging off the side of his ear when the police came in said put your mask back on buddy and he did for a moment and then as soon as they turned around he took it off again and started smoking on his stogie and he wound up getting arrested and taken to jail the mayor of oakland because he wasn't wearing his mask how much have things stayed the same over all these years oh
1: that's so true i think some stores in south florida here have actual guards at the door where you cannot (laughs) enter without your mask
0: wow All right, Diane, thank you so much for coming in and filling in for David. And uh, we got to get you back at the back end for Ask Us Anything, okay? All right, Scott, thank you. And it's always fun to talk to what we call ordinary people with extraordinary finds just to illustrate the fact that you can do this. You can find your people, you can solve your mysteries. And uh, one of those people is Beverly Hewitt. She is in Chubbuck, Idaho. She's on the line with me right now. And Beverly, uh, let's just go back 10 years. You got quite a shock 10 years ago, didn't you?
2: Well, I did. My father called me about a year before he died on the phone, and he said, Bev, I have something to tell you. And I said, okay. He was pretty serious. And he said, well, I'm not your father. Oh, wow. I said, Okay. And he didn't go into any other detail, and I just went on to say, but you're the one who raised me, and you are who I know, so you're still my father. And we didn't have much more to say than that at that time, and then we just kind of mulled things over, and we continued to talk through the next year, and he got ill and died about a year later from cancer. But we still had a great relationship, so there wasn't a problem. But I could tell he wanted to get that off his chest before he died. He was almost 90.
0: Oh, boy. Yeah. And
2: so it was time. And my mom, my biological mother, died 20 years before that, so she never told me. My siblings knew, but they were told never to tell me that mom and dad would tell me when it was time. So it never came out until 2010, Wow! and that's where it started.
0: So at some point you obviously made the decision you wanted to know who your birth father was, and so when did you finally take your DNA test and who did you test through?
2: Well I tested about five years later through Ancestry, I made that decision. I've been working on my genealogy, my family tree for many years, I got hooked back in college when I took a genealogy class about 48 years ago and slowly been working on it over the many years. So I decided after this, I would take the DNA test. They were getting better and I did it through Ancestry. And I also had two of my siblings tested. They agreed to be tested and it did come out that we were half siblings and had all these other people in there that <laughs> I could see. And, and of course, Ancestry has continued to develop and refine the tools. And so over the years time, we've been able to group and to do the different things. And so it's been helpful to been able to sort through, okay, these are my mom's side with my brother and sister. So these are my biological father's.
0: Exactly. And And that's, that's the important thing for people to understand who are trying to do this kind of thing, whether or not you don't know who the birth father is, or maybe it's a grandparent right it can it works the same way you basically have to eliminate the matches that come up on your dna test results that come from the lines not associated with that side and so you started out mm-hmm. beautifully and uh, and and then you shared this with me and i thought it was really interesting i was so impressed i have to admit beverly that you had figured out a couple of what they call genetic networks. And for anybody who's been watching CeCe Moore's awesome new ABC TV show called Genetic Detectives, she talks about creating genetic networks. And these are people that match each other, but don't necessarily match anybody else among your known lines. And you had two of them, which would suggest that you had found your birth father's father's side among the matches and the birth father's mother's side.
2: That's correct, and and that's how I went and grouped them with... I started out, when I started the groupings, I just starred all the ones that I knew that were not on my mother's side.
0: Mhm. Yeah, and because then, you couldn't put a name on it to put them in a group, right? Right,
2: and so I just put them as stars. And then I went through and started looking at these trees or the unlinked trees, and the shared matches was a, a very important part that got me through to figure out that network of which side belonged where, because my closest matches they didn't share any. Right. If you looked at the shared matches between me and that other person, it's like, oh, well, that's got to be the other side.
0: Yeah, exactly. One side, one.
2: So I, I marked those as and did another grouping as unknown one and unknown two, and this kept going through the rest of my matches, and then I could start went to from sort
0: there. them from there. And you know, the thing that's interesting sure. about this is your closest matches were second cousins. And I think a lot of Correct. people feel, oh, if I don't find a half sibling or I don't have a half aunt or something like that, that I'm, I'm not going to be able to identify who my people are. But it didn't work that way with you because of the fact that with uh, all the matches you had on your second cousins, that means you would then share great grandparents with those people, right? And so that makes it a little bit easier. You can go through all the shared matches and find out who they have in common on their family trees and then start to eventually bring those couples forward until you find descendants from each branch that join together, right? That you have a husband and wife somewhere.
2: And that's exactly what I did with some guidance from you. And that was a wonderful experience as I'm still working through some of those to build that birth father's family tree. So I know where these other matches come from. I don't feel like I have to go back to further than third, fourth cousins on there. Right. But it helps to build that tree, and I can say, oh, this is how we connect, and through this daughter or this son and their marriages, and using multiple sources. Ancestry did a great job with, you know, you have your trees and stuff, but then a lot of them didn't link them or didn't have trees, but you knew they matched through others. So then there was other websites like Family Search that you put in the person's name back then like the second great grandparents and see if they have any trees that moved you forward through these sentences
0: sure yeah
2: that was very helpful
0: yeah well you've done an amazing job and and this hasn't even been a week yet so uh, how yeah. did your how did your family feel about this now you said your your siblings knew that you were not from the same dad what, what was their reaction when you told them that you had made this breakthrough?
2: They were just thrilled and were able to find some pictures of my father. These are like school pictures. Mm-hmm. And then one of my half brother. And then we looked at the faces and I looked at mine and there is a similarity. <laughs> yeah. And then one of my children, I was talking with her and telling her about this and sent her the pictures. And she sent me a picture back of her son. And you look at her son and my half-brother and you think, oh,
0: Very (laughs) similar, aren't they? Yeah.
2: So it's exciting. It's thrilling. And I'm excited to continue with this. And in time, when I'm ready and feel like I have my ducks in a row, I will be contacting him and see if he will be willing to uh, do a DNA test so we can confirm all this. But all the DNA links and the trees match right down to that. Sure,
0: sure. Well, you know, really, I think the DNA test with your half-brother would be more for him. Than for you right. because really right. the DNA DNA doesn't lie, and all the right. information that's come together points only to him because he was the only son born to that coupling where the two branches came together. So that made it really easy. You know, I, I will tell you again, as I've mentioned many times on the show, when people find birth family, they're often nervous about what the reaction will be. but more often than not, I mean by a long way, like 80, 90 percent of the time, it's a very positive experience and people are fascinated by it and the things they've learned and the things they've discovered. I'm sure you'll get a lot more information about your birth father and his life and what went on there and about your own origins. Did you find out his occupation? You know what he did?
2: I did because we found an obituary for my father, and he was quite prominent back in Virginia. He was a lawyer, and so that gave me, because of the obituary, the children and his sisters, and so it made some more connections, and his wife that he married six years after I was born. So I did, and I know a little bit, and I just continue to work on that and research, and like I said, I'm building my tree and work on documentation, Sure. and this all makes sense.
0: Have you started uh, Uh, making groups then for the surnames that you learned in the tree, the maternal lines off the grandparents as well?
2: Yes, I have been. And so I'm looking at that as I continue with my matches and so forth on Ancestry, and then in my own software program that I use I'm putting all that in on uh, trees and family group sheets and then I can go back and do, go down through and look at the descendants and say oh now I can see yes that's second cousins I knew that but <laughs> it, it's the visual that helps me
0: yes you yeah, I, I do that a lot I do a lot of just handwritten diagrams sometimes to try to figure mm-hmm. it all out but you know all the pieces have to fit in exactly right the distance from your match to the common ancestor has to fit And then all the other information about uh, who married who and how they all came together. And when it comes together, it's just that aha moment. You sit back and you look at it and you go, there's not a problem here. And as CeCe Moore talks about a lot, too, you know, when you come up with an answer, you do want to try to find ways you can disprove what you've done. But there was no way to disprove this. It was really thoroughly put together.
2: It was was really... Clear wasn't it?
0: Yeah, it was very clear. So, <laughs> and so how has your husband reacted to this? I know he's been keeping an um, eye on you.
2: Yeah, he has. And of course he knew because we had talked about it and he was excited for me. It was good. And again, we talk about it and I get some counsel. And so we look through things and, and just talk about how to approach my half siblings and see how that goes and in time.
0: no. Yep. So, Yep. It's all good. It, it, when, when you're ready to go, absolutely, you'll have those answers. You'll have pictures of yourself that look a lot like your birth father from what you've shown me. So yep. congratulations, Beverly. That's that's great. And I do. think it's great to talk to people such as yourself so that others who may be going down the same path can get an idea that it's doable and you get your DNA in there and, and learn how to use that as just another piece of the puzzle. The results can be incredible. Thanks so much, Bev, for coming on. Appreciate it.
2: You're welcome. Thank you.
0: Well, I think we're all wondering what's going on in uh, different parts of Land during the pandemic, and that's why I thought maybe it would be a good idea to touch base once again with Melissa Barker. She is the archive lady. She's in Houston County, Tennessee. She actually started the archive there, didn't think she'd like it, and just loves it. And uh, welcome back, Melissa. How are you?
3: I'm doing great, Scott. How are you doing?
0: Well, I'm, I'm not wearing my mask at home, I'll tell you that much.
3: I understand, but we got to wear those masks at when we're out,
0: don't we? Exactly. Make sure other people don't get sick. So I've been thinking about you here lately because you always have these fun stories about these amazing things that come into your archive. And the reason we talk about this, of course, is because there are archives all over the country, and there's, I think, largely a lack of awareness of what you can find in there relating to your family, relating to your town and your community. Amazing stuff. And it's a great place for you also to contribute some of the things you may have in your home that aren't going to have a home somewhere down the line. So, Melissa, what happens in the archive when everything's shut down like this right now?
3: Well, I'll tell you what. You know, the archive's work is keeps going. It doesn't stop. We are either in our facilities still working, Or working from home. I actually worked from home for three weeks. And what are we doing from home? We're doing a lot of great things that are going to really benefit genealogists and other researchers down the road. Because we are indexing, we're digitizing our records and photographs, and we're transcribing. We're making our records better searchable. And so I think you're going to see that in the future, in the near future, that many archives are going to be adding a ton of stuff to their websites their social media pages, and also being much more available to those researchers once you start getting back into those archives.
0: And I would imagine for those of you who actually run an archive, you're probably more familiar with where things are now, right? Because it's always kind of a constant state of chaos as you try to organize that stuff when it comes in, right?
3: Absolutely. You know, I I like to say it's organized chaos. (laughs) We uh, have our inventories, we have our lists and things. But this has really given us an opportunity to do some inventory, to look at a lot of our finding aids. A lot of our archivists are redoing or revamping their finding aids, comparing finding aids and indexes to the actual collections and making sure everything's there in its proper order. Um, and we're making discoveries as well. I know that sounds crazy. In the archives, how could you discover it again? Right. <laughs> but many archives have so much that even as archivists, we discover things that we either forgot we had or knew we had, but oh, yeah. we brought to our front of our minds that, hey, I forgot we had this. We need to tell our, our researchers about it.
0: Well, and think about local libraries that house a lot of the things that you keep in archives. The ones I'm most familiar with are in New York City. In New York, they don't have any idea of everything they have. In fact, I once found a book from the 1950s that made note of some records that I was interested in finding, and it said it was now in the Municipal Archives. It had previously been someplace else. So when I first brought it up, they didn't know about this, but then I presented to them a copy of the page. Now they knew they had it, and then the search was on, and they ultimately found it, and now it's one of their most treasured record sets for uh, researching New York City firemen. They didn't even know they had it.
3: And that happens all the time. And so that's why it's very, very important for researchers to continually talk to the archives where your ancestors lived where your ancestors' records are located, whether that's a library, an archive, a museum, and ask them, what new records have you processed? What new records have you received as donations? Talk to them about that and see what they have that's new, because maybe it's new, maybe they just got it, or maybe it's new that they just found it in their archive sitting on a shelf.
0: Isn't that funny? (laughs) Do do you sometimes (laughs) feel like you just want to slap your forehead when you see something like that?
3: Absolutely. You know, like I said, I've been working on different things that— we've not been able to get to because we have phone calls and emails and patrons that walk in the door. And so those are our first priority. So during this time, we've been able to do a lot of work on collections that have been sitting. And so I've been just amazed at some of the stuff that we have in our own little archive that now I'm going to be able to share with researchers.
0: You know, I I seem to recall that at one time you said to me, when you go meet with an archivist somewhere in your area, ask to see if you can get a tour of the back room. Uh, d- describe your back room and what goes on back there.
3: <laughs> yes, I always encourage researchers to ask for that tour because not only will you get to see the vastness of what an archive has, but you will also get to see, hopefully, some of the workrooms that, and seeing what they're working on currently. And it'll give you a better understanding of the fact that it's not all online and that we really need to be using our archives. And so in the Houston County, Tennessee archives, We have our back rooms as well, and in those back rooms, we have shelves full of boxes that have manuscript collections, we have vertical files, we have a map collection, we have a wonderful and ever-growing photograph collection, and so knowing what an archive has helps you as a researcher to figure out just what you can ask for and what maybe they might have for your ancestor.
0: Boy, absolutely, and I, I would imagine that's where you're finding some of the things you didn't even know you had, right?
3: Absolutely. I was indexing some collections while I was working from home, and the information that was in these records is just truly amazing, and and stuff that uh, goes towards local history, but also towards genealogy.
0: So what are some of the things you found? I mean, you've been kind of broad about this. Have you found anything interesting lately? You always seem to find, like, a can opener from 1885 or somebody's family (laughs) Bible from 1910. What's the latest?
3: Well, the latest is, is that I took on a couple of projects of indexing, And one of the things that I did at INDEX are county warrants. For people who don't know what a county warrant or a warrant is, it's just like a check, if you were to write a check. And way back when, when we used to write checks, we would have a check stub that would stay in our little check register. And so that's what these are, are the little check stubs that were in a register, but they were dated from 1871 to 1878, Oh, wow. And these are the very first checks that were written when our county was formed on January the 21st, 1871. So it has check stubs paying people to build the first courthouse, to build the first jail, to do the survey of the county boundary lines. So that's going to go towards our local history. But as far as genealogy is concerned, what I found, which was amazing to me, is I always knew that there were paupers. But these check steps show county paying and providing and helping our local paupers by giving them money to live on. So that's in there. But then you also have where they're paying local mercantiles that were also provided caskets. They paid for caskets when those paupers passed away. They paid for funeral clothes, for their burial. And it gives the name of the pauper. And so if you have poor ancestors, and we think there are no records out there for these people, these are wonderful records that we're going to be able to provide to researchers to show them, look, your ancestor did have a record, even though they were poor.
0: Boy, that's a great find. That had to be a thrill. Do you wind up trying to track down sometimes people who are related to the people that you discover in the records?
3: Yes, that's one of those things that archivists run into all the time is that as we're working with these records, you can't help but want to stop and research some of these people, wanting to know their story. And so, yeah, we do. We stop, and we, I've done a little bit of research on some and trying to find descendants because I know a lot of the people around here that research some of these names. And so I've been able to share with them some of our finds in these county warrants. And so that's why it's always fun to stop and do that research.
0: You know, you're just hitting it right on the head for me because I'm telling people all the time, don't limit yourself by thinking everything's online. It is so far from everything online that you need to go to these archives, these local libraries, these different repositories and see what they've got there. And you might be amazed that you're going to find the key to the vault, the information that you've been looking for in a place. You never expected to find it. So, Melissa, thank you so much for coming on. She is the Archive Lady in Houston County, Tennessee. Thanks so much again for coming on.
3: Thank you so much, Scott, for having me.
0: You know, it is not very often that one of us genies actually winds up with a network television show, but CeCe Moore has done it. She is the star now of the ABC TV series The Genetic Detective And uh, episode three is coming up this week on ABC. It's Tuesday nights happening at 10 o'clock Eastern and Pacific, nine o'clock Central and Mountain Time. And C.C. Moore is on the phone with me right now. Hello, my friend. How are you?
4: Great. How are you doing?
0: You know, couldn't be better. It's great to talk to you and, and to be catching up on these episodes because these are some of the cases that we've talked about on Extreme Genes over the last two years. And it's amazing to actually watch how they came together. How are you feeling about it?
4: You know, I'm really excited for this episode. It is really important to me. All the cases are, but in this one, we actually were able to exonerate somebody. And that was the first. Yeah, Yeah, that was the first time that someone had been convicted of a crime and we were able to clear their name and they had an official exoneration and had that murder conviction overturned. So that's huge because- And and that was in
0: Idaho, right? That's in Idaho? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so
4: this is the Angie Dodge rape and homicide case out of Idaho Falls, and a man named Christopher Tapp had been convicted of her rape and murder, and his DNA did not match the crime scene DNA sample, and so there was always some question of whether he was guilty or not, and he was very young when he was questioned and had ended up confessing to the crime. And it turned out to be a wrongful confession, which does happen, especially sure. with young people under pressure like that. And so that made this even more impactful because it's not just about putting people behind bars. It's also about clearing people's names. Sure. And usually that happens behind the scenes. But this was very public and you could actually see the impact that it has on Christopher's life.
0: So for you, I mean, we've talked many times over the last couple of years about these various cases and how satisfying it is for you to identify a perpetrator of a, of a terrible crime. This has got to be at a different level.
4: You know, it is because to help clear someone's name is pure joy. Yeah. When I help to identify someone who's going to be arrested, it's bittersweet. I feel for the families on both sides. I want justice served, but I'm certainly also aware of the potential negative impact it could have on the suspect's family. I mean, imagine being a child of one of these people who is suddenly revealed to have committed these horrific murders and rapes decades ago. It must really shake your world. It's a horrible thing. But with an exoneration, it's all good. Yeah. You know, there is no downside to helping to clear the name of someone who's been wrongly convicted. And so it's just so much joy, and I think really the, the highlight of my entire career. And that's hard to say because I've had a lot of great <laughs> highlights in my career. But I think that was the pinnacle, being at that press conference in Idaho Falls a year ago and seeing the joy of sure. Christopher Tapp and his family.
0: And we should say also to all Eugenies who have opted in to JedMatch to help CC to do this thing, way to go. <laughs> and look what your Absolutely. work has done. Absolutely. Right?
4: And this one was a tough case. We needed all those matches. This case took a lot of matches to get to the final you know, identification of that crime scene DNA. And so if people aren't watching the series, this is the one I hope they will watch. Please watch this episode because it really does show the good that can come from investigative genetic genealogy in a more complex way.
0: She's CeCe Moore, star of The Genetic Detective on ABC Tuesday nights, 10 o'clock Eastern and Pacific Time, 9 o'clock Central and Mountain. CeCe, always great to talk to you, and we look forward to chatting again next week about the next episode.
4: All right. I look forward to it as well.
0: And coming up next, Diane Southard, your DNA guide, returns for David Allen Lambert for another round of Ask Us Anything. And, Diane, we have a question here from Chip in San Francisco, and he is asking, Hey, guys, what is that new little symbol next to my DNA match names? That is a perfect question for you, Diane.
1: Well, Chip, it's an organization tool, actually, to help you keep track of the matches you've already identified belonging somewhere in your family tree. So I know most people can come to their DNA match page and maybe all those first cousins, well, you know who they are. So maybe you don't need to keep track of them. But as you dig deeper into your results, you identify third cousins and you don't remember them by name. So this is a way where you can actually connect your DNA match with your family tree. So by clicking on that button, you are then asked, okay, who is this person in your family tree? So the key is you have to ask to put the person in your tree. So if this is your third cousin, then you need to actually draw out in your tree how they're related to your family, put their name in your tree, and then you're just telling the system these two people are the same.
0: And I'm assuming, Diane, that if somebody's using a handle, this is a great thing to do because if you figure out who they are, then you can put them in the tree and then you don't have to decipher who that person is just through your notes all the time.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. So it just it makes it so simple because later on you just click that button and it shows you exactly how you're related and it refreshes your memory right away and you say, okay, that's right. This is that person.
0: So you would have to actually do the reverse genealogy to make sure that the, all the links are in the tree. Would it do it if that isn't there and make them float around, <laughs> not connected nope. to anybody?
1: Nope. You've got, I mean, you can, I guess. Yes. Any person you put in your tree, no matter where you put them, you can then attach to your DNA match. But the value really is in the descendancy work. There is so much value in that. And so I think it's just one, one more way to encourage you to do that actual descendancy research so you can pull their line all the way down to them and then attach them to their tree exactly where
0: they go. You know, descendancy research is is so valuable not just for DNA, but just for locating people who might have information or photographs or documents or stories or whatever it is. I first did this in the late 80s and there really wasn't a genealogy community at that time. There were, you know, a handful of experts out there you could write to in certain organizations, but I remember when I did it And I located third cousins in different parts of the country, and they shared with me things that I treasure to this day because they were so rare. And I had no idea that 20, 25 years later, these descendancy charts that I'd put together, because once I realized you could do this and it would pay off in such a big way, I did this for all of my second greats and my third greats and pulled them forward. And then when DNA came along, it was like, Oh, well, I know who that person is. I know where that one fits in. It was really easy. And so uh, the, the beauty of it now is it, it's a lot easier to do descendancy research than it was back then, because everything is so connected and you get your shaky leaves and you get your hints on family search and other places. It's, and it's fun. It is
1: fun. And so valuable. I'm glad you've seen such a strong payoff because I see it every day, and I think it's my number one tip. Just do descendancy research.
0: Do descendancy research, and then when your golden key match comes along, you'll have some idea of where they fit in, and that can make all the difference in the world in achieving your genetic genealogy goals. Diane, thanks for filling in for David this week. It was great to have you on. Thanks, Scott. Well, there you go. That's our show for this week. Thanks once again to Diane Southard, to CeCe Moore, to Beverly Hewitt, to Melissa Barker, the archive lady. It's a star-studded show. Thanks for joining us. And remember, as far as everyone knows, we're a nice, normal family. This has been Extreme Genes. Share your family story by going to FamilySearch.org.